Hello, and welcome to World Building for Masochists. You're about to listen to one of our early episodes, first recorded back in 2019. It was a different world. And we've learned a lot since then, not least about how to record and publish a podcast. Since 2019, we've done things like expanded our pool of guest stars, swapped in a new co-host, and bought new mics. So the early episodes may not be the best place to start your World Building for Masochists adventure. And good news! This is not a podcast that you need to listen to in sequential order. Each episode focuses on a different topic, so you can start anywhere and bounce around. Do you really love maps? We've got an episode for that. Untangling the ethics of your magical system? We've got an episode for that. Interested in building a queer norm world? We've got an episode for that. Consider yourself more of a reluctant world builder than a masochist? (laughs) Yep, we've got an episode for that too. You can also choose by author. We frequently play host to amazing guest stars who are doing some of the most exciting work in speculative fiction today. If you want to know what episodes we would start with, then we've added an episode sampler page to our website, worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com, which lists a few of our favorite episodes and those we think are particularly good representations of the show as it is now, in whatever year you're hearing this. We'll update that list from time to time so that it stays current. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy... World Building for Masochists. Welcome. You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because we got tired of just talking on Twitter. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alexandra Rowland. And I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. This is episode one, Playing God in Your Spare Time. Hi, friends. Wow, new podcast. This is so exciting. Um, I'm so uh, thrilled to be talking with you guys about one of my favorite hobbies of all time. Um, I think since this is a new podcast, we, of course, have to take a couple minutes to sort of talk about ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our our dearest wishes of our hearts, and uh, what sort of expertise we have in this subject. Why are we here? Why did we think that it was a good idea to start a podcast about world building. Rowena, you start. I have to start? Okay. Um, (laughs) I am a um, longtime writer and longtime nerd, um, and my biggest interest with um, writing and world building, I I tend to start a lot of times with history and with um, biology and with nature and just kind of like all kinds of jorky stuff that what would people notice my current books that are out um are torn and fray with a third coming in the trilogy and they are so good (laughs) and they focus um on women's work and um, urban living and revolution and silk so i mean what more could you possibly want all the best things yeah um, I too am a fantasy author. I have a, my debut novel came out uh, last year, A Conspiracy of Truths. Uh, I have another novel coming out uh, this September, the sequel, A Choir of Lies. Uh, and both of those, I have some amusing anecdotes to tell you about the world that those are set in, and I think I'm going to hold that for a little bit later in the podcast. Uh, but world building is something that I occasionally do just for funsies when I don't have a reason to do it. Like, I'm bored. I'll just 
do some world building for no reason. Uh, and I have had some wonderful conversations on Twitter uh, with our friend Marshall Ryan Maresca here about uh, tidal patterns and the influence of two moons on a world and so forth. So I look forward to having a redux of those conversations at a later date. <laughs> Uh, so I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm also a fantasy writer. That's that's why we're all here. <laughs> sort of the theme here, yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm the author of the Meridane Saga, which is four different series intertwined, all set in the same city, um, that all form a larger whole in in as a greater saga. Um, so my books are The Thorn of Denton Hill, A Murder of Mages, The Alchemy of Chaos. An import of intrigue, the Holver Alley crew, the imposters of Aventil. Don't you have like 12? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm very prolific. <laughs> the imposters of Aventil, Lady Henterman's wardrobe, The Way of the Shield, uh, A Parliament of Bodies, which just came out in March, and then Shield of the People, which comes out in October. Look at you, fancy man, showing us up. <laughs> We're like little babies compared to... <laughs> compared to compared to Marshall Ryan, actual Maresca over here with his 12 novels and fancy man vests and so forth. Yeah. So uh, let's jump into some conversations. I'm just going to sort of like take charge and ask some questions and so forth. Uh, since it's the first episode, I think we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, where you start with world building because it can be, I think for a lot of people, it can be such a huge and daunting task. Uh, so where do you start? What do you do? Well, <laughs> I was say, it's a huge and daunting task. And for some reason, the thing I love to do is how do I make it more daunting? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I want to start with like as, like as big and wide of a scope as possible. Mm -hmm. Like even though what I'm writing is only taking place in a city, I still need to know the whole world. So I usually start with the map and, and use that as, and how even I like get the map can like I can I can get deeply deeply wonky on how I make the map. Like I've done it where I like make like a proto continent and then break it up and then smash it back together so that then like I know where the mountains are and things like that. Um but that I that's where I love to start just cuz I always get stuck if I don't know what's over the next hill. So I need to know the full scope of things just as a way to get started. Yeah, yeah. And for me, I think it's, um, I really like, I like building a world where it feels like characters have elbow room, right? You know, like there's space to, to move and, and sort of flex their, their influence in the, the environment around them, but also that there is a world beyond the horizon. I really like feeling like the it's expansive and and rich and that there are things that we don't know. I th I think I see a lot in fantasy that a, a writer often since they know everything about the world, the characters that they're writing often know everything about the world and that's not really how it works in real life, you know. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that I start um, thinking about the character first and what are they encountering? Like, what do they have for breakfast? What do they see when they go out um, of their door in the morning? And there might be things that the character doesn't know about their world. I think, um, you know, like you, Marshall, I, I started um, the story in a city 
And my character actually doesn't know very much about what's going on outside of that city. She's never been outside of it. So there's kind of a freedom there for her to be ignorant. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of weird for me at first to be like, okay, there are things that I might know, but I need to like keep that shoved aside because there's no reason for her to know what this other city would look like or what the patterns of trade are between, you know, these two coastal towns. She's never been there. She has no idea. But she might have, say, heard the name and has her own preconceived notions of what it's supposed to be. And I think that having a character with some degree of ignorance can also be a really useful tool for you as an author because then you can, and I'm going to keep bringing this up because it's my favorite trick of all time to use. Uh, You can sort of build a negative space and invite your character to make assumptions about the world and also invite the reader to make assumptions about the world Uh, because oftentimes the reader will come up with some kind of imagining that is way more rich and interesting and vibrant than anything that you could actually translate and put on the page. Well I mean absolutely because I think reading is a creative act so the the reader is going to layer their experiences and their preconceptions and what they understand over whatever you say anyway. So it's kind of fun to play with that and to have that knowledge that it's going to happen. Yeah, we have a whole list of dot points to talk about, dear listeners. And one of the most interesting points that we came up with is this idea of choosing versus presuming. Do either of you want to talk about sort of what we meant by that? How many how many things do we put into a fantasy world that are just these sort of base presumptions that we're not even necessarily making the choice? And like you see so many let's say, Western Europeans-styled fantasies where the idea that there's royalty and nobility and a king and all that is just a given. And how often is that, like, are you really thinking, this is what I want it to be? Like, do I want that a year is, you know, about 365 days, that there is just one moon in the sky and the sky only, and the moon only goes around every 28 days? Like, how much of that was a thing you were like, yes, this is what I want it to be? And how much of that was, oh, I didn't think about what I wanted that to be. You just presumed certain things. I mean, of course, there are so many levels of base presumptions that you're going to make regardless. Like the fact that, you know, you have humans. Bipedal. (laughs) Breathing oxygen. (laughs) At what level do you be like, no, I need to make a conscious choice about these things rather than just presume that that's what it's like. Yeah, I mean, and I really like to, I find myself choosing the, well, some of the defaults, uh, quite often, like saying there are four seasons in a year, or there are 365 days in a year, or there are 24 hours in a day, or there's only one night and day cycle, and they're roughly like between eight and 12 hours long, depending on the season and your position in the the, the world. Um, just because like those things are not the most important things to me, and so like. Presuming something is not necessarily a bad thing to do when you're world building, or at least making the presuming choice. You know, I think that it is important, as you say, to to think about the choices and yeah. to make <laughs> deliberate choices. But if your deliberate choice is to construct a world with 365 days to a year and 24 hours to a day, that's not a bad thing. You don't have to do like everything original and everything different um, all of the time. Because for then, for one thing, your reader is going to be totally lost, and it's going to be a really steep onboarding process to kind of get them up to date and up to speed with what you're doing with the book. Um, whereas if you just let them bring some of their own assumptions to the table, um, that saves you a lot of fucking work. I think also, like, 
some of the presumptions save a shortcut in terms of a cascade effect that if you change something like how long is the year or what a seasons look like, what else does that affect? Not only kind of down the chain, yes, if you have different sure. kinds of seasons, well, so, what does agriculture look like then? And you kind of have to rework all of that stuff. So that can be fun, but that can also be, um, again, a lot of work. Um, and also kind of back up the chain that there could certainly be things that you play with that suddenly, oh, this earth is not inhabitable anymore because I made a year way too long and it's actually like spinning out of control from its sun or whatever. So mm -hmm. there's kind of goofy stuff there that um, you can dig yourself in a hole kind of easily. So presume, right. presume with care, but at the same time, some of them are there for, for ease as well. Right. Like, cause at some point you have to stop doing the world building and like start telling a story. Like as much as, as much as we all love world building, it is possible to do too much. Right. <laughs> uh, and you do have to like give your reader a chance to get invested in the world that you are building. And that means giving them a plot, giving them characters, giving them a person to be interested in. As awesome as world building is, it's there at the service of something else, which is like the story that you eventually want to blurf out there. Exactly. Unless you're doing it for, you know, funsies and, and a side hobby, in which case go fucking nuts, kid. Um, uh, Marshall Ryan Mariska, my dear friend, you have uh, some dot points here called Marshall's Three Paths, top-down, idea out, and bottom-up. Do you want to tell us about those? Yes. Okay. So the way I see it, when you decide you're going to start world-building, there's basically three ways you can, you can go about it. The, the first would be top-down, that you build your world as you write and just do a whole discovery, improvised world-build, like you... You just start writing and your characters suddenly go, it's like, well, if we do this, the council won't approve. And they're like, oh, so I have a council now. So that's going to be a thing. <laughs> and and you, use your, you use your discovery writing process as a way to discover the world. This, to me, would be a nightmare. But, <laughs> but some people love to do this. It works for some people. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and the next one would be idea out, that you have a big concept of like, th this is the story I want to write. And then use that big concept as, you know, say it's like everybody lives in giant trees and uses gliders to get about and there's monsters on the ground. So that's my big idea. And so we're going to start from there and then figure out everything else about the world building based on that big idea. An aesthetic thing. Like I really want to write a story like with these aesthetics, with like a steampunk aesthetic right. or a solar punk aesthetic or elves living in trees and hang gliders kind of aesthetic, like you said. Yeah, like I have I want this steampunk story of pirates in a giant blimp. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else needs to be based around that that idea. Um and so you world build around that. And then then the third way is from the bottom up, where you just start the world building process from the very beginning build everything and then find your story from within your build process, which you can go really deep and in the weeds with that if you really want to. And sometimes I have to stop myself from going too far in the weeds because you can be like, okay, how, how far back do we go? Do we, do we work out history from the beginning of civilization, from the cooling of the mantle in the first place? Like you can go that far back if you want to, but does that necessarily help you in terms of 
then writing a story at all or is it just you getting super wonky with with your world building right if you want to get super wonky with your world building i think you're using the word wonk here as in policy wonk yes okay rather than wonky as in like broken (laughs) i mean I, i guess it could be both really I think that prehistory is a good place to do those presumings, uh, where you can say we can just like presume that the the uh, crust of the Earth cooled by as it does by the default, uh, and that evolution happened sort of as it does, maybe with some uh, tweaks here and there, so that we can have dragons or giraffes with wings or what have you. So yeah, like that's a that's a good place to do the the presuming, I think, rather than like examining every single piece of that and like making a deliberate choice that yes, you're going to have uh, the Earth's crust cooling however many billions of years ago and so forth, because uh, as you say in the the dot points here, this way does lie madness. Yes, indeed. The other thing, the one thing that's sort of like always depresses not always depresses me it's not so much a depression as like sometimes I think about this ruefully while I am I am world building and I think to myself you know what I could just make any old shit up and no one would even really notice or care but I think too it can keep you from writing yourself into a corner where you contradict yourself if you know all these things you didn't suddenly write you know a world where you know I was right traversing the open plain and then we hit the mountains and then we were on the river and oh crap I just wrote a river that's running up a mountainside and that's mm-hmm. not, not going to work yeah. or this coastal town that I suddenly have like really odd tornadoes running through because that doesn't work either and so it can kind of keep you from screwing yourself over or writing yourself into a corner that you can't get out of you know, when you have that groundwork, even if no one ever really sees it, it's it's a cheat sheet for you. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, of course, when it comes to the writing, you don't want your world building to to come through so much that it, your readers will feel like there's going to be a quiz at the end. The thing that I always talk about is the iceberg rule, mm-hmm. you know, above the surface and visible is just a little bit. And there's all this other beautiful stuff that's never going to be in the text that only you know, but... The fact that you know it can bring a lot of richness to everything else in the text, in theory, so that it feels more complete. Um, and also, like, when you have... If, you're, if your goal is to do kind of, like, expansive world-sized world building, then, like, starting with at least, like, sort of a sketchy map. You don't have to have it, like, fully detailed. You don't have to know where all the mountain ranges are. But just sort of, like, a vague idea of, like, sort of where the continents are and, like, maybe, like, what latitude your particular uh, country is lying at. Just so that you know, like, the basic weather patterns and environment. Because that's something that's going to immediately affect the characters, right? I think for me too, I found myself needing kind of a little mini city map because this was like, I have someone who's walking the same paths every day and going the same places. And it was like, well, I didn't want to write myself some point where I'm just throwing street names out there and I'm kind of not really sure orientating myself where my character actually is. So you have like the big picture maps and then also like the little mini sketches that you sometimes need to kind of orient your day to day as well as the kind of the global your books are set very much in in cities right and i think uh marshall ryan raska like you also i am going to continue calling you by your full name by the way i was really frustrated with like a lot of sort of 80s and 90s era fantasy where there's we go to a city and the city is a bar and like one alley where there's you know thieves who steal things and like one lord's castle and that's the whole city and i'm like that's 
that's not how cities yeah. are. It's really, really cheap sets, I think, might yeah. have been part of that. But no, I hear what you're saying. It's like, because you want to think about all the things that a character will encounter. And, you know, they, they don't just have the Cheers bar and the alley of thieves who beat you up and the castle that's like way over there that like maybe they go to, maybe they don't, depending on who they are. And you have quarters and you have outskirts and you have a place where the city meets everything else. And is that a hard delineation or not? And when you're thinking about the bigger picture, you know, you have things like weather patterns or geography that how is this actually playing out in the world? You have storms rising up from like where now? I'm not sure. Right. And again, if you are wanting to write a book, if like, for one thing, if world building does not sound fun to you, this is not the podcast for you. Um, <laughs> like I keep thinking to myself, well, you know, you can do that, but you don't have to do that. And then I'm thinking to myself, yes, but the people who are listening to this podcast are the people who are going to want to do that. So <laughs> I shouldn't worry too much about it. But yeah, like, again, this is all deliberate stuff. And I think this is very much sort of, um, you should do this to the degree that you think is most fun. And whenever it stops being fun, you should stop doing that and do something else. Yes. <laughs> and and for me, like the the fun part is particularly like not so much environment building because the environment building is is fine. But I tend to just sort of like sketch it out, however, uh, and like get that over and done with, so I can get onto the really fun part, which is building like cultures and civilizations and and people and talking about how people influence the, the environment around them and so forth. Right. Because people and environment are so intrinsically linked. It's like, that's where the fun comes in, I think, is that interplay between people and where they live and who they are and what they do. Have you heard of that theory? And I don't know if this is like a proven theory that's currently accepted in like the field of anthropology, but it's the one that I was kind of taught when I was uh, in early college, there's this idea that the environment shapes the kind of religion that a culture will develop. So if you have an environment with a very unpredictable and violent weather system, for example, Mesopotamia, which had terrible storms that would cause flash floods and kill a bunch of people unexpectedly, uh, then your religion often develops unpredictable and capricious and violent gods who need to be placated uh, somehow. Whereas on the other hand, if your weather system is and your environment is very stable and uh, regular, for example, ancient Egypt, which had the uh, annual floods that could be predicted down to the day, uh, your gods tend to be much more chill and <laughs> like less of assholes, still kind of assholes. You know, they have their family drama just like anyone else. But like, much less kind of murder people than the Mesopotamian gods were by comparison. Are you guys familiar with, with this? Have you heard this before? I have heard that very specific thing before, yeah. I forget yeah. where I read it, but yeah, I do remember I do remember that. I've, I've heard now that guns, germs, and steel is out of favor, but I'm still a big fan. That The idea of what is physically in the area as you are is definitely going to be a strong indicator of what kind of culture you have just because of what resources are available to you and what foods are domesticatable, what animals are domesticatable. I think that, I think that animals specifically would affect culture because, for example, like when you domesticate dogs or cats or cows, that opens up a widely, it opens up a whole new range of opportunities and options for you. And then whatever option you choose is a reflection of the values that you have as a society. Uh, 
like whether when you domesticate goats, are you going to stick with being a nomad for your goats and sheep? Um, are you going to have a semi-nomadic life and develop some agriculture on the side? Um, and that has something to do with the environment as well as like values and, and what is available to you. One of the things that I think like going along with that, um, that really affects values and how a culture functions is just scarcity. What's common and what's scarce. That if you think about, for example, nomadic cultures um, often develop because of scarcity that you have grazing fields that are not going to be sustainable year round. So you have to keep moving. You have water that's not sustainable year round. You have to keep moving. Um, So if, if you have something that's scarce, suddenly it becomes very precious. At the same time, if you have something that's very abundant, it can also be very important in a culture um, just because it's all around you. So, you know, if you have trees all around you, suddenly that becomes something that you build mythos and importance around as well. So it's kind of interesting, like like you were saying, what is in the environment? How does it shape what you value in a society? Yeah, so um, let's move on. We have some other questions to touch on. Um, what are some of the reasons for doing like big expansive world building versus more small and limited other than I felt like it? When I first wrote the first book in my series, it was, it is all contained in one city. Like they never leave that city. They don't leave. There are things happening outside the city, but it's not um, something that actually affects the, the characters um, in a direct way. But then I kind of had to bust out the walls when I got a, book deal that was three books instead of one and had to write two sequels so I had to do some major renovations on my world and really blow it out and um, expand it I mean I had ideas of what the world looked like out there but I really had to get into more detail and actually take these characters out of a very, very insular place and shove them out there into the big wide world and so that gave you know kind of an opportunity for you have to have bigger world building if you have a bigger story that is more broad over more more area and more time too and and i think part of it is just to give that that extra layer of verisimilitude so that so that it doesn't feel like the cheap sets like it doesn't feel you you want your story to feel like if if your reader happened to just like escape from the story and go around the corner they're not going to find you know the back of the set and minor characters having a smoke break or you could and that, I mean, sorry, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, like, you want it to feel like there's so much other stuff happening all at the same time that isn't just isn't the story you're telling. And I think that comes from having that more expansive world built. Now, there's the pitfall that I did all this work, now now I have to show it all to you. The world that all my Meridane books are set in, you know, it's they're all pretty much set in the city of Meridane, but I had done the whole world, and so I have the trunk novel that is the like now we're going to go to each part of the world so you can see it all and it's trunked for a very good reason (laughs) that still helps inform where i'm coming from so that i'm aware of all the different more cosmopolitan influences happening in the cities and i think that certainly helps me from just making it be just another serial numbers filed off remembering that even a very kind of like historical or even ancient inspired fantasy world is not insular that there are trade routes and there is exchange of ideas and there's commerce and that was one thing that was really important for me in building um the the unraveled kingdom 
world was that commerce is really huge and it's kind of undercurrent in a lot of what's going on. And so it's like, you kind of have to be aware, like things are coming in from places and you have to have something that you want to sell to places. So what's happening there? What are trade routes? Why do people, you know, even keep in touch with you? Um, because they want something that you have. So thinking about that undercurrent of, of richness there, you know, And I think that's something that a lot of people sort of forget about in regards to the real world, which was that we have had global trade or nearly global trade for a long ass time. You know, we have um, archaeological records of jewels found in Viking settlements that were brought from Sri Lanka and South Asia. It might have taken a long time for, for one product to get to the other end of the world, but they were moving and people were in communication with each other. And it might have been like a very long relay race of I'm selling you this thing and then you sell that to another person and so on and so forth. But it existed. It happened. We have had contact with each other and there wasn't nearly as much um, here there be dragons kind of stuff back in the the ancient times as we tend to assume that there was. Have you guys ever had that acquaintance who is like this probably happened to you when you were like a tiny baby uh, writer learning to learning to, to world build for the first time? Did you ever have that friend who was like, oh, yes, I have like. 140 pages of world building for this fantasy world, which I have been working on for 12 years. And one day I will be finished with the world building and I will go write a novel in it. Did you, do you guys know that person? I think I was that person. Uh, Now I do. I know that person now. I didn't, I didn't want to call you out specifically Marshall Ryan Mareska, but I had a feeling that you were going to be, because it generally is like a white guy who tells me this sort of thing. I'm sorry. I, I was like, I can see it in his eyes. <laughs> he was that guy. <laughs> well, like, I definitely was like, you know, some, I was for a long time in that sort of like, someday I'm going to be writing in this, someday I'm going to, and then, you know, eventually I was, you know, in this really, really terrible job and wanting to quit and, you know, figure out what the heck I'm doing with my life. My wife was like, you keep saying you're going to write books, just buckle down yeah. and do it. So I buckled down and did it. <laughs> but, you know, but I had, was doing the thing where I was just, you know, fiddling with the world build, fiddling with the world build. Now there was actually at least a semi reason for that because there was a period of time where I was g- contacted by a guy who had a gaming company and was going to launch a new role-playing game and wanted a setting. And so he was like, and because we had a mutual friend who was aware of all the world building I was doing, he's like, I think the setting you're doing is it. Do more world building. So I was doing it for that for a while. And so then I was like, okay, now I have all this. Now I really have to settle down and get, get, go from having all this to actually writing something that's set in it. So I will, I will tell you an amusing anecdote. Oh, there's an amusing anecdote. Um, because I was, I was sort of this, but the uh, backwards this but backwards um because when I was uh this amusing anecdote is that when I was in college in my finals week of my very very last semester uh I was an English major as you might have guessed 
so I only had like one actual test that I had to go into class for and everything else was papers that I had already handed in. So I had a whole week to sit in my dorm room with like loads of free time all to myself. Uh, and I had just had a terrible breakup with an asshole gentleman. Uh, not a like, gentleman, then. <laughs> not a gentleman. You're correct. Uh, and so I was like, I need to do something fun that's just for me. That's not for any class or for any any project. Because if I have it for a project, then I will put like tons of weight and stress on it. I'm just going to do a bunch of world building, and it will be specifically for no reason whatsoever. Um, I will never write a book with this. This is just for me. So I was doing like those, those 30, 50 pages of, of intense world building, right. but I was going, I'm never going to do anything with this. And then like three months later, I was like, I wonder if I could do something with this. <laughs> Best laid plans. It was, it was really genuinely only supposed to be like a procrastination project while I worked on this, this steampunk YA book that I was writing at the time. Uh, and then, like three months into it, I started planning a conspiracy of truths. And then I started. Then I sort of like tripped and got a book deal. And here I am with uh, this expansive world. And right now, all of the projects that I currently have planned in, like right now and in the future, are all set in the same world. And me from uh, just about to graduate college kind of looks at me from right now and goes like, you little bitch, this was not supposed to be for anything. <laughs> like kind of going the, the backwards route from how people normally uh, do with their expansive world building. So now one thing I was kind of curious about was groundwork and foundations. And if you'd ever found yourself um, written into a situation where your world building dictated something about your story. I, I think a good example of that is in Lady Hinterman's Wardrobe, where, so in that series, um, the main characters are in the poor west side of the city, and they're a bunch of thieves who pull heists, and they're a lovely, lovely group of characters. This thing that they're going to do is they're basically trying to sneak and break their way into a rich manor house on the east side of the city. And so I was like, okay, I, you know, I have all the neighborhoods in the city and where this is, where this is. And I'm like, I'm, I can't just have them like popping halfway across the city every day. So I'm like, okay, so I'm going to have to have them set up some sort of separate base of operations a lot closer to where they're going to be. So things like that, where what I've set up forces a, a thing that I wasn't originally planning. So now they have a whole separate safe house to work out of away from their neighborhood when so much of what the plot is is about them protecting their neighborhood. So then I'm like, ooh, can I play with the fact that they're now halfway across town and can't run back and protect their friends if something bad happens and stuff like that. So things like that came up. Whereas if I just had a vague, ill-defined city, I could just pretend. You could just do whatever. (laughs) A lot of times I... A lot of times I think of it as kind of like a game of solitaire. And like like when you're playing solitaire, um, you have this game. There's no one else in the room but you. Uh, you're playing solitaire by yourself. And you're playing rules that you have agreed upon with yourself. And you could like peek at the, the next cards and sort of, oh, here's an ace from like 12 cards deep in the stack. I'll just take that. No one will know. Right? Like, like you're setting up your own rules and you're choosing not to cheat. But sometimes you really want to cheat, though. 
right? And like it, it can be pretty, pretty difficult to stick with your self-discipline, as it were, uh, and not fuck up your own world building by being vague about where streets are or saying like, oh yeah, I could just like have them be mysteriously there to rescue their friends. I might not have explicitly defined magic can't do that, even though I've, you know, said that in my head, but maybe I need magic to do that right now so it's, so my life is easier. Probably no one will notice. And magic totally adds in a whole other layer of craziness, doesn't it? Oh, oh, yeah. oh my gosh. It's like, you know, you can, you can, you can define it in a way that can do anything, but if it can do anything, then you've just totally undermined everything sometimes. You got to play with then what that does to society. One of my favorite things for that comes from uh, Stephen Bruce's, um, I want to say that it's the Vlad Tlatlos, I'm I'm surely mangling, that series, where resurrection magic is just so ubiquitous that then, like, assassinating someone is just a way of saying, hey, quit it. Because being killed is, like, a minor inconvenience. He brought magic to that level of power and then how that affects society. Yeah, same thing in uh, Jen Lyon's uh, Ruin of Kings, because they have this, like, death cult where you can just die and just be brought to brought back to life and so it's really really interesting to construct this world and I have talked to Jen a little bit about or quite a lot about about this actually um no spoilers obviously but like like Jen has constructed this world where dying is not necessarily a permanent thing uh, and that has like huge ripple effects, but I think we can have, I think we're going to have like, like five episodes about magic. I think that we will have to, cause there's no way to fit it all in just one hour. Oh yeah. Um, but it's interesting when it's the foundational thing, right? That it's kind of like, it's as foundational in some of these worlds as the weather or the geography. Um, and so it's kind of an interesting wrinkle that you throw in there that there's this extra thing that can affect everything else or write you into a corner or be really fun or make you bash your head against the wall, just depending. <laughs> uh, so how much do you want to apply about the non-setting locations? Like when you have um, a setting that's a little bit more limited, like a city, like uh, how the two of you work, and I mean, I have done it too. Um, what is important, like We've talked a little bit about like trade routes and and so forth, but how important is it to talk about what's beyond the city? I wouldn't say it's absolutely necessary, um, just because I think it's in many ways dictated by the story and the characters in terms of what you actually say. Now, you might know plenty of beyond the horizons, but um, I think that there are certainly characters who, just because of whatever um, circumstances they're in, are limited in what they know about. Um, so, you know, you can have characters who, um, are really working class, illiterate, have no knowledge of what's, you know, out there except what they kind of overhear. And that's what you can pass on to the reader. Or you can have a character who is, you know, the king in the high castle who knows everything and is getting all the letters and the correspondence and has all the maps and has traveled. And that's what the reader gets then. And so I think a lot of what's passed on and at least if you're doing any kind of first person or close third, um, is going to be through the perceptions and the experiences of the character. Um, and I think that in many ways that can lead to richer world building, um, 
mm, on the yeah. page, then anything that we do behind the page is kind of like, okay, how is this experienced and how is it tactile and how is it understood by an actual human person? Oh, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the best ways to convey world building to the reader as well without making it seem like an info dump because people have a much higher tolerance for info dumps when it is about characters and their opinions and their experiences of the world rather than cold hard facts. For example, no one reads the prologue to uh, Lord of the Rings, which is like concerning hobbits, which is like 30 pages of like hobbits and pipeweed. And so, like we probably read it once, but that's not the part that you go back to. Most of the time you just skip ahead to chapter one, right? It, it is literally that 30 page like sociological report on the Hobbit. Yeah. As a, as a youthful person trying to read that book, like I kept, I kept bouncing on it because I was like, this is the first part. Yeah. I was like, I'm supposed to read this. I'm Whereas if you skip right to chapter one, then you get to hear about Bilbo and Frodo and their interactions with their neighbors. And that tells you a lot about Hobbit society, but it tells you about it in a much more interesting and engaging way. Um, so having a character who has strong opinions about the world around them is a really, really good way to sort of convey that information to your reader because then they can um, complain about things. Readers love that. Uh, they can enthuse about things. Readers love that as well. Um, and it's just easier to read about emotions than it is to read, read about facts. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Like rather than like a treatise on what magic is and how it works and all that, if you have some guy just griping about mages and they probably set the fire. This, a, it's telling you already that magic exists, yeah. but it's also telling you a lot more about the society and how it reacts to magic and yes. things like that. Yes. And <laughs> what is normal and then what is surprising to a reader or to a character can tell the reader a lot too. You know, if this is, they're going about their day and they stub their toe on a unicorn and they say nothing, you know, this is not surprising. This is normal. Um, but if they're going about their day and someone's selling apples in the marketplace and this is exciting and surprising and new, like you're like, oh, okay, so why is this surprising? And now you have my attention and maybe you can feed a little bit more in there as to why it's, it's interesting or surprising for a character. And it also gets the reader asking questions, which is kind of the ideal that you want to aim for, because if they're asking questions, then they're interested and they are invested in hearing the answer, and then they won't mind if you do a little bit of an info dump to, to tell them that. What are some of the other characters who are, besides, like, um, like emotional people, um, what are some of the other characters who are useful vehicles for carrying world building to, to the readers? Do you have any examples or opinions? Characters whose job is education is always of, are always useful ones to that. That's pretty good. Because then you get... Something that's sort of info dumpy, but you present it as an in-character thing of here's a professor giving a lecture or here's a professor yelling at your main character for having the wrong answer and thus you can give them the right answer. Or not to be all like, well, in my book, but I love to say, well, in my book. <laughs> I think we're all going to be doing that a little bit. So like <laughs> one thing I did to get a bit of like history info dump out in Way of the Shield was rather than just be like history info dump, A, I made my main character be a history buff. So like that's his thing. And then I put the, a painting in front of him 
that represented bad history. So he just gets mad seeing this painting. Like, those ten people were never in the same room. They did not actually work together. Like, who commissioned this painting? And why is it here in a museum? This is terrible. And so then you get some of what the real history is, but you also get this sort of sense of if the legend is better than history, print the legend, and that's what the oh, painting yeah. is. Oh, yeah, but, like... And you know that is like 1,000% my jam too is like bad history or, or the stories that we tell each other because that tells you so much. Not only like does it tell you the actual story that they're telling, it tells you a lot about the person telling the story. It tells you a lot about the uh, society that they live in that has the values that it does to come up with this particular story. Um, it's doing usually like between three and five things at once instead of just one thing as Tolkien's Concerning Hobbits treatise does, which is just tell you about hobbits. <laughs> so yes, we are coming up to the end of the podcast. We are running out of time here. Um, Rowena suggested that we talk about some things that we are excited about uh, to get you, dear listeners, excited about the rest of the podcast. Uh, who wants to go first? Because I know that I have tons of very interesting things. I'm definitely, you know, as we do our deeper dive into things, um, I'm definitely going to be excited about talking more about things like infrastructure in the world and governments and how roads and waterways and trade routes and all that fun stuff in terms of how the worlds actually work and function. So those, that's going to be a fun thing, I think, to talk about as we, as we dive deeper into stuff. I am very much into naming things and uh, constructed languages. I actually minored in linguistics for the explicit purpose of maybe one day I will have to make up a fantasy language. Like that was the actual reasoning that I had for, for minoring, minoring in linguistics. In hindsight, I think that I probably would have done a little bit better with like anthropology or history just because like languages... The, the stuff that you learn in a linguistics course is not as accessible to the general public as the stuff that you learn in an anthropology course or a history course. And I think that those might have been a little bit more immediately useful for world building purposes. Um, but I'm also really excited to talk about astronomy because that's kind of the one science that I have any kind of brain for. Uh, and yeah, bunches of other stuff. I am excited to talk about, um, like we touched on magical systems, and I think the integration of magical systems with a culture at large is something I'm excited to dive into a little bit more. Um, I'm also really excited to talk about family structure and what is family and what is parenthood and what does childhood mean and kind of playing with that really kind of mundane, ordinary, but um, also possibly very varied and exciting part of life. Fantastic. Hi you, thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and for letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. I'm so excited to be doing this podcast with these two cool authors and to be talking about some of my favorite parts of the writing process. We've got a huge list of amazing topics to talk about, and I think we'll be inviting some guest stars as well sooner or later. Stay tuned, because we're only going to get deeper into it from here. 
Our next episode goes up July 10th, and we'll be discussing geography, astronomy, and map making. Uh, if you don't know anything about any of this stuff, that's totally okay. I think we'd probably better have a bit of a crash course in each of them just for educational purposes. We really hope that you liked this first episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there are a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. Here's your cool fact of the day. The first documented use of natural gas as fuel was in China in the first century AD. Thank you.